0: Hear the word of the Lord from John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Before this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel."
1: I'm Rob Spikestra, the pastor of Discipleship here, and it's my privilege to come in on the second week of a new series that we are in, and it's a series of the Gospel of John. Uh, As we were contemplating and thinking through Uh, the the next series that we were going to have, we remarked that, wow, we've been in the Old Testament for a long time. I don't think I've been in the Old Testament as long as we had been in the Old Testament these past, really, about a year and a half, and so it's kind of refreshing, if you will, to come back to the New Testament, come back to what all the Old Testament was pointing towards, and that, of course, is ultimately what we're seeing this morning, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning's passage begins with a question that I think is deeply profound, and one in which if we are going to be effective and fruitful in life, we must ask and be able to answer for ourselves. And that's the same question that was asked of John the Baptist, who are you? What makes John the Baptist's life worthy to consider, probably why, I'm sure, why the, God, the Apostle John gave him, uh, him to us, is that John pointed people to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was true to his unrepeatable life. He was true to his unrepeatable life, and as a result, was effective and fruitful in life now before we go forward we need to ask the question what does it mean to be effective and fruitful for a believer in jesus christ one who has trusted in jesus christ as their lord and savior well it means that we are living for our ultimate purpose so the question is well what is that well, we go a lot of different passages, but let me take you to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And this is the one I was promising you that I would come to at the very beginning in terms of our pastoral welcome. So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, uh, this is what we read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now look this, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's our purpose. There's our purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, This is the end of, of all those who are in Jesus Christ. He chose us, he predestined us, He adopted us in order that we would praise his glorious grace. Our purpose is the same as John's, to point people to Jesus' glorious grace. But we cannot do that if we cannot answer that question, who are you? In God's redemptive plan to redeem sinners, John the Baptist played a unique role in that, in that plan. As reflected on his unique role, Jesus said this of John. So went to Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Fascinating what he says here, not only about John, but about us who are part of his kingdom. He, he says this, Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus reflecting again. On the Baptist's life, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Well, that's quite a statement. That's quite a phrase for a a man who has done this ministry. But then look what he says. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. (laughs) What is he saying here? Well, from a prophetic role that John the Baptist was called into, we are are going to see that he had a special calling. Yet in the perspective of the kingdom of heaven, all those who are citizens of heaven, all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have an equally important role, and even a greater role than John the Baptist. And I think it's this, the greater role is is that all that John the Baptist was pointing towards, he was looking to Jesus Christ, but he never got to see what Jesus Christ came for, and that is to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead. No, he didn't get to see that, but we do, we did, and so we are able to point back as witnesses of Jesus Christ as the one who did die for us and who did raise from the dead, and so thus we have an even greater role than John the Baptist an equally and greater role than John the Baptist. That is if we know who we are. See, you are an unrepeatable human being. There's no one going to be like you. There never was someone like you. And there, no one, there, will, no one, there will never be someone like you in the future. You are... Are an unrepeatable human being? No one else like you. You have a unique physical, emotional, and spiritual makeup that has never existed, nor will ever exist again. You are placed in a time of history of which no one else has been placed into. You, you are placed in a people group. You are a place around particular people that no one else will ever get an opportunity to do. Uh, what you get to do. You live in a time and within a place that God has uniquely placed you for the praise of his glorious grace. Isn't that amazing? Listen to how Paul expresses this in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28 kind of end of this message that he's giving there in Athens. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Speaking of nations, the nations what? Made up of people. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We are unrepeatable human beings who have been placed like characters in God's redemptive story to the end that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, there are four temptations that we're going to see in this passage that we have here. Temptation that tempt us from being our unrepeatable self. And then what we're also going to see is that in John, we, have a, we, we see an essential, an essential element that is necessary if we are going to be that unrepeatable person, if we're going to be that person that God has called us to be in the place that he has for us in this time. And so I think we can learn a few things out of John's Baptist, unrepeatable life, and as a result, live an effective, fruitful life, pointing people to Jesus' glorious grace. So with that... As our hope and aim in this passage, let's ask God for help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that we could come now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. Thank you uh, that uh, you, Father, wanted us to know something about this man, John the Baptist. Not just simply for our curiosity's sake, but, Father, for the sake of changing our lives, for our joy. Father, we thank you that you are calling us to be blessed. You want our happiness. And our happiness, Father, is as we fulfill your purposes within our lives, and that is to point people to the greatest glory, the glory of your grace. And so, Father, we pray, help us as we do this. Father, we know your redemptive story. Our place in your redemptive story is sometimes confusing, and we don't understand it. Father, we think of Isla today. We pray for her. We pray for your healing of this cancer within her. We pray for Josh and Kaylee, dad and mom. We pray, God, you'd give them what they need at this time as they are this, part of this difficult part of their story. We pray for Mike and Beth, the grandparents, father, members of ours. We just would ask, God, that you would be giving them help as well. We pray that they would find you more than sufficient for this moment. We pray for the rest of the family, father, that you would, uh, you would father, use this as a way to point people to Jesus Christ. So God, we pray that you would do that the same for us today, that as we continue in your word, that you would point us to the person of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, let's look at our text. First phrase, and this is the testimony of John. Now, John the Baptist was already introduced in the preamble that we looked at last week. See, the Gospel of John was, is, is a, a particular genre called the bios that we learned last week, and this particular genre begins with a preamble. And the preamble is somewhat like lesson objectives. If you remember those textbooks that you had in high school or college, they say, "Now, what you want to do is you go into this particular chapter. You want to be looking for these particular things." And so that's what the preamble is doing for us. It's telling us that we need to be looking for certain things, themes, and characters in the following story. So, if you have your Bibles open in verse six, we were asked to look for a key character, and that character was: "There was a man sent from God whose name." Was John? Look at what he look at what he came to do. Verse fifteen. If you have again your Bibles open to verse fifteen, he was to be a witness, a witness to the Word who was with God and who was God and who became flesh. Remember, chili con carne. I'll never forget this now. Chili con carne with meats. <laughs> Jesus took on meat, flesh. And verse 14, again, if you have your Bibles open, "...dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father." So the purpose of John the Baptist's witness is that we might believe in this one, in him, the Son of God. And again, this fits with the Apostle John's overall purpose for writing this gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31, he knew he would be writing, well, he didn't know he was going to be writing. God knew that through John, he was going to be writing to people like us who can't seem to get really focused, and so he says, I'll tell you why I'm writing this gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31, here it is, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he gave us this gospel. Thank you, John. We are distracted people. We need to know exactly why it is that you wrote this. This is why he wrote it. So, John the Baptist is shown here to give a testimony, to be brought forth here in this passage like a witness in a court of law, and he's going to give a witness. Now, look who he is going to give his testimony to. Again, back to our passage. And this is the testimony of John when, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, who are these Jews? Who are these Jews from Jerusalem? Well, the Jews who sent the delegation are the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were the highest authoritative body in the land under which Roman authority controlled all Jewish internal affairs and it's important to understand that the weight the weight of the of this group's opinion See, in Jesus' day, it is believed that there were around 70 members, and that the members were dominated by the chief priests and their extended family. So there's a chief priest that would be raised up every year, and so you can imagine, after 10 years, you've got 10 different chief priests and their extended family, and so they were part of the Sanhedrin. Most of these were from the Sadducee Sadducee party over against the party of the Pharisees, and so you can think of it in our two-party system, that's exactly what they had. They had a two-party system, primarily. Sadducees. Think of the Sanhedrin in our American terms as the judicial, the legislative, the executive branches, all wrapped up into one authoritative body. And that will give you the, the, the weight of their opinion on matters there in Jerusalem. the matters there in Judea matters there. Uh, over the Jewish nation. Their opinion of you mattered. Not only in the religious arena, but in day-to-day social and economic ways. They had the capacity to shut down your business, your social life. They had a capacity to shut down your family. So it was this group who walked up to John the Baptist and are asking, who are you? And so what they did is they sent a delegation from the group who were priests and Levites and Priests were from the, they were descendants from Aaron. So if you remember, Aaron was the brother of Moses. So this is a long descendants coming down. And so these were, these were priests from them and they're from the tribe of Levi. And so you also have Levites who were not of the family of Aaron, but they ministered at the temple of God. So they couldn't be priests, high priests, but they were at least they're ministering. Now, interestingly, John the Baptist was of a priestly family he was of the tribe of levite and he was of a priestly family so it's possible he could have served as a high priest although we don't have any record of that so it's perhaps the familiar or familial or friendly connections that this is why they sent some priests and levites to john to find out to be to kind of find out about his ministry and not surprising considering john the baptist was having a significant impact around Jerusalem, the region around Jerusalem. We are told in Matthew chapter 3 verse 5 that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea, so you can think of Judea kind of like a county, and all of the region about the Jordan, so the surrounding state or states, they were all going out to him. And just one more thing to note about this simple phrase, the Jews, of the 70 or more times it is used, it is used for Jewish leaders who are actively opposing Jesus. Rather than this simply being a who are you question of a neutral fact-finding mission. Now, there's something going on here. I think it is coming with the freight of the power of the religious leaders. John, John is facing their who, who are you? What are you really doing here? John would be facing a real temptation to want to get on the right side of these leaders. It would be good for him. Their opinion mattered. And that is one of the temptations of not being true to our unrepeatable self. We are tempted to conform our identity about, around about what others think of us many of us place a high premium on what other people think of us so is this you do you obsess over what you're going to say or not say in anticipation of a family or social event do you find yourself debriefing what another mother said about your child or your parenting after a play date as you consider your career choice, are you focused on how that reflects on you and others' opinion of you? When you are concerned about a decision uh, a fellow MC member is making that you are concerned about, but you kind of remain silent because you really don't want to bother, you don't want to shake things up, you don't want to bother them, you're concerned about what they perceive of you. Does your self-image soar when you are complimented and plummets? When you're criticized, or you can find yourself in this scenario, you are an individual. You uh, with we're going to have a, a brief conversation with another individual, maybe a five minute conversation. And the first two or three minutes before you are there to meet with them, you're thinking about all the clever things you're going to say to impress them. And then when you are there in the five minutes together, you're figuring out ways how you might respond and how you might be really kind of clever and funny. And then you, they leave and you walk away and you think, oh, I should have said it this way. I should have said, oh, I didn't do that. Oh, <laughs> is that you? We're tempted to conform our identities around what others think of us. And this would have been particularly tempting for John. But look how he responds, verse 20. No, he's, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, we don't know a question that spurred John's answer, but the way he piled up one expression on top of another, he wanted his listeners to be clear, I am not the Christ. Now, this is the first of seven times that we have in our passage uh, where John uses what's called the emphatic I. And this is important because within the, the, Greek, the Greek word, uh, it, it, the pronoun fits within it. You don't need, a, like in the, English, in the English language, you don't need the pronoun I in front of the, the Greek word, the, the, uh, the verb. It's, it's the first person pronoun is fit within that verb. But if you really want to make an impact, you use the pronoun, atu. And so that's what he was doing here. He does it seven times. He didn't need to, but he's emphasizing seven times this thing of I. John knew who he was and thus understood his role. Whoever or whatever others wanted him to be because uh, he knew who God, God called him to be, he was able to resist the pressure of the temptation to conform his life around their opinion and thus able to fulfill what God had called him to be and to do. Verse 21. Then they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, Here we go, I am not. Are you the prophet? <laughs> and he answered, No. See, look, look how in kind of exasperation his answers are being compressed. So that the final one is just an emphatic curt, no. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that rather than asking him who he is, they start with who they think. He is. It's tempting to conform our identities around what others think our identities ought to be. Now, why are they asking about Elijah and the prophet? Well, Elijah, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, at the very end of Malachi's prophecy... He writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. For he and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now the day of the Lord was the day the Jews expected for the Christ to come and to make all things right So the rightful Jewish expectation was that Elijah would come to prepare for God's people for that day. So they're looking for the Elijah. Or what about the prophet's? Well, as the Jews anticipated the day of the Lord, they expected many prophets to come, uh, but they expected particularly one prophet to come. See, they expected prophets to come to bring the word of God. And as we've already seen in John chapter 1, at the very beginning here in the preamble, the word of God is absolutely important for the existence of God's people. They knew that. And so they were always looking for the word of God. They were always looking for prophets. But there was one particular special end time prophet who would come in anticipation of this Christ, of this Messiah. So this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God tells Moses that he would send a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 18 and 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among my brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I will require of him. In other words what you do with the prophet's words is going to make a difference in your life. And what we find in John the Baptist is that to be effective and fruitful in the kingdom of God is first to understand who you are not. So often, what do we do? We admire the work of someone else that we want to take on that identity. Or we want to be what they are doing. We want to do what they are doing. Or we envy where they are at and we wish we could be where God has called them or placed them. We are not being our unrepeatable self. We are trying to imitate someone else and thus not effective or fruitful. So the second temptation we must resist is to imitate someone else. And Jesus knew, I'm sorry, John knew who he was not. He was not the Christ, he was not Elijah and he was not the prophet. So who is he? Well, it is clear that this envoy cannot go back to those who sent them with a series of denials. So they finally come to the point of the, to, to, for him to speak for himself. So they said, verse 22, they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he answers by quoting What they value as authoritative. He answers through God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, where this prophecy is found in the book of Isaiah is notable. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the theme is one of judgment and exile for rebellious people. God's people are not what they should be and are receiving the curses of the covenant. But then chapter 40, chapter 40 through the end of Isaiah, chapter 66, it's like everything changes. It goes from judgment to redeemer. God promises them a redeemer. And it's only in three verses in to this good news of the Redeemer that we find this quote that John gave to his, uh, his inquirers. It is a metaphor calling for every obstacle uh, in the way for this Redeemer to be leveled, to be filled, or to be straightened in order that people might return to the Redeemer. Who was John the Baptist according to John the Baptist? He was a voice that's how he perceived himself he was a boy voice a voice preparing the way for the christ the redeemer because he knew who he was he was clear on the message that would prepare the way for christ the redeemer and that message was simply this repent repent Repent. The quintessential message that John the Baptist brought was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's still true today. The message that will fill or level or straighten every obstacle in your life is repentance. Repentance is an acknowledgement with your head that what you think is better than Jesus is not. That it is sin. And what you love that is not Jesus is sin. And that what you are doing that is the outcome of these lesser loves is sin. And that you turn from what you think and love and do and turn to Jesus. This is repentance. The obstacles, the hills, the valleys, the curves are all removed by a decision of your will. To repent. See, John knew who he was—a voice—and that informed his message, and it also informed his manner. You probably have an image of John the Baptist in your head uh, when we entered into this. Not here in Matthew three, we find his manner, and his manner is he is what he ate and wore. And that was important enough that Matthew actually recorded it for us. So here's a third temptation to our unrepeatable self. We are tempted to identify ourselves by what we have. We are tempted to identify ourselves by what we have, our possessions. Here's what John the Baptist had. Now, John, Matthew 3:4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. now his robe would have been kind of a flowing garment and it would have been woven from camel's hair probably a rugged apparel as I can only imagine um, fit for desert wear because that's where we find him in the desert it was durable, it was economical and matter of fact, Jesus later made a point to note that John did not wear fine clothes if you didn't know about it, (laughs) Matthew chapter 11 John wore simple, durable clothes and his di- diet was equally simple. He subsisted mainly on locusts and honey. That sounds good, honey. That wasn't all of his diet, but that was his main diet, both being found in the desert. Now, I think for us who eat clams, mussels, frog legs, and Rocky Mountain oysters, we don't, can't find much fault with locusts. But anyway, so... <laughs> The main point is that by the means of his simple mode of life, evidence with respect to both food and clothing, he was pressing against the selfishness and self-indulgence, the frivolousness, the carelessness, and this false security which many people were rushing in toward their doom. So think particularly about the audience that Matthew points out. Again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the religious leaders were blinded by their own self-satisfaction and self-indulgence and privileged place within the Jewish nation. So John's lifestyle, his dress and his food, was a visible rebuke, not only to the religious leaders, but to the many who, have had, who did not have those privileges, but nonetheless admired and longed for the same advantages. So it's his, his manner is being, is being informed by the message, and that message is being informed by the fact that he knows who he is. His unrepeatable self. See, note here, he wasn't calling people to come out to the desert with him. Nor was he calling people to take on his clothing or to take on his diet. He wasn't doing that. No, John knew in the knowledge of his unrepeatable self, he knew his message and conformed his manner to be effective in communicating the message. John was effective and fruitful because he knew his unrepeatable self. So who are you? You're unrepeatable. We must resist the temptation to conform ourselves to what other people want us to be. We must resist the temptation to imitate others. We must resist the temptation to identify ourselves by what we have. And finally, we must resist the temptation to identify ourselves by what we do. By what we do. So you look at verses 24 through 28. Verse 24, now, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now I want to tell you that the translation here is a bit confusing, so let me just make it, uh, explain this here. These are the Pharisees who have come. These are the Pharisees within the larger delegation group who, now, who are dissatisfied uh, where the questioning has gone. And so they ask their own question. Verse 25, they ask him, then why are you baptizing? if you are neither the cross, Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets. See, water, water baptism, immersion, was not unknown in John's day. Proselytes, non-Jews, who desired to come under the Jewish faith, were known to be baptized. But John was baptizing Jews. So they're asking, why do you do what you do? What they're really asking is, who authorized you? Who authorized your baptism ministry? Now, this is a natural question for a group of individuals who had amassed a certain amount of clout within their culture. So, John the Baptist was stepping into their spiritual territory. And they were assessing okay, where does he fit? And they were asking themselves, how do we relate to this guy? How how should we relate to him? And what they were doing is they were identifying identifying him by what he did. See, John wasn't placing his identity around what he did. Look how he answers them. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize you with water. Now, if you are a reader of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, And Luke, if you're familiar with the synoptic gospels and you're familiar with how they recorded John's uh, John's response here, I baptize with water, you know that what all the synoptic gospel says is, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that's typically how we understand that phrase. But John, the apostle, he doesn't write it that way. No, rather John says, no, I baptize you with rather. He focuses on their lack of knowing him. I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. See, John, in the preamble, has already said we ought to look for that reality. John chapter, t- ver- chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Preamble. You've got to look for this. Here it is already. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Now, this ought to cause us to pause, What do you mean? We missed the Savior? We missed him, the the one who is the creator, the one who has powerfully and intimately is involved in the creation of the world, the creator, he, he got missed when he came into the world and was walking among them and they missed him? That ought to cause us all to pause. Jesus was among them, and they missed him. The creator of the universe was among them, and they missed him. That ought to cause us to pause. <laughs> what hope do we have? Are you missing Jesus? Jesus. When he came into the world, he was walking among them, John the Baptist and his contemporaries, and they did not know him. See, the problem for missing him is not that he's great. The issue is not with him. John continues, verse 27, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am, not worthy to untie. So Jesus' reflection back on John says, this is the greatest and yet, when John reflects on who he is in relationship to this great God, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, who's come down and, and become, take on flesh and is living among them, he says, I am as one who strap, a, I am the one who cannot even undo the strap of his sta- sandal. See, loosening the sandal was the task of a, of a slave. I can only imagine they had you know, maybe some kind of bench. You got into the house, you had a bench, and the slave came over and unstrapped your chan- sandal for you. They, things have not changed today. By the way, um, feet, feet, ooh, right? That's what we're talking about. Feet, yuck! Don't mess. I don't want to mess with your feet. That's what the slave did. It's a humbling act to touch another's foot. There was a rabbinic saying. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. And yet John chooses this task to express the greatness of the one whom he is preparing the way by saying, I am not unworthy, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. Or maybe we could say it this way. John understood his place in the universe. Humility. Humility is the core essence of John the Baptist's character. We read later that as John's ministry is waning, his disciples seemingly are struggling, John's disciples are seemingly struggling with this reality. So John says in chapter 3, I don't, even, I don't think I have it up there for you, but uh, uh, he says, uh, he, John says to his disciples, he says, he says, he must, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. See, humility humility is a tough, it's a difficult thing to get to. um, Because just when you're trying to work on humility, you blow it, right? I'm going to be humble. And then we proudly state this. It's, it's difficult to get to, and what we tend to do with humility is we tend to say we try to lower ourselves and somehow looking at ourselves. Oh, I'm not that good. I'm not, and we are looking at each other. Oh, I'm not as good as you. You're much better than me. And we're kind of doing this kind of a thing, and it's just weird. And we're really prideful when we're doing that because look how humble I am. That I think I'm less than you. You know, we just can't win, right? You, but you can win. You can win. how this is the essence of who you are if you make your comparison <clears throat> to the God of the universe. And so then, when you can understand where you fit. And I think that's what John does, did here. See, humility is knowing your place in the story and then just faithfully carrying out one's part in the story. See, John tells us, his disciples, a little bit further in John chapter 3, verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. <clears throat> humility recognizes where all things come from, so that each person receives from God certain gifts and personalities and even stories. John Calvin wrote, the measure of us all is to be what God intended us to be. And he continues, what man of the ordinary rank would venture to desire more than what the Lord has given him? This single thought, if it were truly, duly impressed on the minds of us all, would be abundantly sufficient for restraining ambition. (laughs) The expectation is that we will take the things that God has given us with thankful hearts and then improve upon them and use them as God has ordained So John the Baptist goes on to express the importance of knowing one's role within the context of a greater story. So again, talking to his disciples, he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. See, John recognized, I'm just a friend, and I'm excited for my my friend, the bridegroom, and he says, no, that's Jesus. Thus, in light of Jesus' growing popularity, John says this, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So every one of you walked into this room, and every one of you, I could probably say, would say, I just want a little more joy. And God says, okay, live out your unrepeatable life. Know who you are. Give give me thanks for who you have become. Give me thanks for your story, and I know you have some ugly stories like mine. But God has used that for you for the glory of his grace. Now, interesting, when we think of humility, it's not sheepishness, because rather than living out one's role, one's place in God's story, humility is actually the engine for courage. So that you can go to the seat of power, like a guy named Herod, and you can call out his sin. That is what got john the baptist to go to the seat of power and say you are a sinner which got him jailed and eventually got him killed humility was the engine for his courage and is the is the engine for our courage to live out our unrepeatable lives wherever god has you So John's ministry of baptism was real, and it was necessary, thus verse 28, but it didn't hold on to, but he didn't hold on to what he did as important, but rather for what it was for, to point people to the praise of his glorious grace. So look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And look at this. Verse thirty one, I myself did not know him. I was going to miss him. See what does John John Baptist mean by that? Well, John Jesus was John the Baptist's cousin. And certainly John the Baptist heard from his mother Elizabeth about his pre this preborn John who literally uh, did a somersault in his mother's womb when Mary the mother of Jesus came to visit, or he had to hear about his father's first words about his birth where his, uh, his father prophesied that John was going to prepare the way of the Lord, practically a word-for-word recitation of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, he grew up with Jesus. So what does John mean here? Well, I think it's this. John the Baptist didn't trust his own feelings or impressions, but on God's word. See, look at what he says. This is why he baptized. See, he knows that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because something that has happened previous that has identified Jesus as that Lamb. And here it is in middle of verse 31. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel, verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I I himself did not know him. I really didn't know if this is the Messiah or not. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is why I do what I do, to point you to the Lamb of God, the Son of God. John formed his identity around the Word of God, whom God says he is. And as a result, he pointed them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God who came to live a perfect life in order to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament whose blood was shed and died, pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He was our substitute on the cross. He took our sins in his body and shed, died and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. All who receive him as their substitute lamb have a new identity. And that is one of the themes of the Gospel of John found in the preamble. Remember John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 if you have your Bibles open. It says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but it wasn't true for all of them. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is your identity an unrepeatable self with a purpose that no one else can accomplish in this room except you. Perhaps today you walked in this place with a skeptical spirit or a resistant spirit, a hateful spirit, an indifferent spirit to Jesus Christ. Well, the Son of God came to this earth and went to the cross for you, to give you new life, look there, a new spirit, his spirit, for it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Receive him today. You will get a new spirit. believer the road to an effective and fruitful life pointing people to jesus christ begins with repentance it's confessing and repenting of caring about what others think or of being envious of their story it is repenting of the concern for what you possess and do as somehow that's the essence of of your being it is turning from these false identities the road begins with repentance and it continues with thanksgiving Thanksgiving for your unrepeatable life, a life that consists of your unique person and story, a story that he has redeemed through Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. And it is is to improve, then, where God has you today. The road to an effective and fruitful life pointing people to Jesus Christ continues with asking the simple question, God, who do you have in my life that I have been uniquely placed to point them to the Lamb of God? There is and will be no one like you. No one. So live your unrepeatable life in such a way as to point others to the praise of his glorious grace. <laughs> so every week we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God when we take this supper. When he, ha- he set this up, he said to his disciples, this bread is my body. And then he took a cup and he said, this blood, this, cu- this cup is the, represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So as we take the bread and we take the cup, we're reminded again what Jesus Christ did for us to be people who, even this past week, we can repent of how we have not lived our unrepeatable life in a way that honors him. And now we can say, yes, once again, yeah, Jesus Christ died for that as well. And Father, help me to live the life you want me to live this next week. So let us take this together, body and bread. Jesus Christ shed, died and shed for us. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this, letting us know about John the Baptist. Father, not again because of some curiosity, but because of what you're calling us to be today. Father, I have the privilege of being able to look in the faces. I look all around here, and there are as many stories as I see people. Lives that are unrepeatable, and you want joy for them. And you want joy as they live out their life in such a way that points people to the grace of Jesus Christ. How we thank you, Father, for the grace that we are reminded of as we take this bread, as we take this cup. We are thankful, Father, for what Christ has done on our behalf, that we might become children of God, children who get to point people to the greatest person in the universe, your Son thank you, God. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.